The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Fathom Church. It's good to meet with you on this 4th of July weekend. Um, Hello and welcome to those of you who are streaming online. It's good to have you uh, with us this morning as well. If you don't know me, my name is Eric Shelley. Um, I'm on the preaching team here at Fathom, and I also serve as the treasurer here at the church. And so as treasurer, I I help oversee the budget. Um, I report to the elders and to the church about giving, and I kind of manage all the finance-related matters here at Fathom. And if you're like me, you know, some of you might be wondering right now, well, what, what qualifies someone to be a church treasurer? And the, the short answer to that is not a whole lot. I, I was willing to do it. Uh, Chris was like, you, you wanna, do you want to do this? Great. Job's yours. You're, you're hired. Um, but in, in addition to, to being willing to do it, I do have a degree in finance, and I, I, my day job is, is in finance, and so that helps a little bit. When I was in college, I studied finance, and uh, in my junior and senior years of college, I had, I had four roommates, and they were all engineer majors. So two were uh, mechanical engineers, one was chemical engineer, and one was biomedical engineering. So, so some pretty smart dudes. I'm not sure how the business guy ended up with uh, four engineering friends, but I did. And, and these guys were, these were my best friends in college. You know, we hung out, we did, we did everything together. Um, we're always hanging out together. We had an apartment and um, we'd hang out. We'd, we'd talk about typical stuff that college guys talk about. Sports, girls, we quote movie lines to each other. We talk about, you know, working out, lifting weights. We talk about music. Um, believe it or not, sometimes we'd even talk about school and what we were studying. Um, and so it was always kind of funny because they were studying some, some really hard stuff. Uh, you know, chemistry, physics, and some of the technical stuff that engineers study. Um, but then they also took a bunch of math courses. So your algebra, calculus, trigonometry, uh, linear algebra, differential equations, um, some pretty advanced math courses, far beyond what I studied in, in business and finance. But we'd talk about, um, talk about this stuff, and, and my engineer friends, they would say, I don't understand what you're studying. What, what, is, what is finance? Is it just, is it just learning about money? Um, and so I came to realize that you know, God created each person's mind a little bit differently. Like these guys, they could learn and understand uh, linear algebra easily. You know, like, like Goodwill Hunting, they could go up to a blackboard and just, just solve these complex, uh, complex math problems, but they wouldn't understand how a mutual fund worked or how interest rates worked. Um, so I had to find a way to, to kind of explain to them what I was studying um, in, in an easier way, a simplified way, so they could understand it. And so I came to explain finance in this way. Finance is about determining value. $100 today will have a different value in a year from now or in five years from now. So what is that value? Or what value do I need today if I want to have $100 in five years from now? So oversimplification, but, but that's, what, that's what finance is. It's, it's determining value. And that's what today's passage in Matthew 18 is about also. It's about determining value, determining kingdom value. What is Jesus' value in his kingdom? How, how are we valued in the kingdom of heaven? And so we're going to discuss value today. So please take out your Bibles. You can take out your own book, phone, or a tablet. Um, There's hardback Bibles under every chair. Uh, We'll be in Matthew 18 today. Uh, Matthew 18 is on page 823 if you're using those hardback uh, Bibles. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a a bit of um, a context and a bit of review of where we've been in Matthew so far this summer. 
In May, we resumed our series in Matthew, and throughout May and June, we've been studying Matthew 16, 17, and 18. And this section of, of Matthew's gospel is, is largely focused on Jesus' teachings to his disciples. Now, at times, Jesus taught large crowds, like he did uh, when, he, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, thousands, hundreds and thousands of people. At other times, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and the Gospels record those interactions. And at other times, Jesus interacts with individual people. Like, it might be people that he's, he's healed or that he comes in contact with. But then there are times where Jesus is largely alone just with his disciples, just with the 12, and he's teaching them. There's very few other people around. And this portion of Matthew that we're preaching through uh, right now is one of those sections where Jesus is mainly teaching just his disciples. And he's walking them through the details of his kingdom. He's showing them what his kingdom looks like so that the disciples know what the kingdom looks like when Jesus gets rejected and crucified and then ascends into heaven. So Matthew 18 begins with the disciples. They're having the, the goat debate. And not, not the parable of the sheep and the goat, but the, the goat debate, the greatest of all time. That's what they're discussing. Um, sports fans, sports talk radio, ESPN, they're, they're always having these conversations. You know, who is, who is the greatest? Who is the best? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Is it Kareem? Is it Kobe? Who is who's the, the greatest? Who's the greatest soccer player? Is it Messi? Ronaldo, Pele, who's, who is the best? And apparently Jesus' disciples were, were not much different than sports fans because they were having the same conversation. But instead of discussing other athletes, they're talking about themselves. Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Who is the greatest? Which disciple is the goat? And so Jesus answers their, their goat question in two ways. First, he gives them a visual. He brings a child up in front of them and says in Matthew 18, 4, he says, whomever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Pastor Chris preached on this two weeks ago. Jesus' point was that the humble, those who have childlike faith, are the greatest in the kingdom. And then next, Jesus gives them a parable to answer their question. That, that's what we will read in today's passage. <clears throat> Only instead of talking about goats, Jesus is going to talk about sheep. And today's passage is commonly called the parable of the lost sheep. So Matthew 18, let's start in verse 10. We read, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Have you heard the term flyover states or flyover country? It's, it's a somewhat derogatory uh, political term. It refers to the states in the middle of the country that, that really aren't destinations for, for tourists or travelers. So people going to the East and West Coast or, or really New York and California, they fly over these, these states. So middle American states, Iowa, Nebraska, Dakotas, Arkansas, um, Geographically, Colorado's kind of there, but because of our mountains, we're, we're kind of a tourist destination, and so we, we may not quite be included in these. But the implication with the term flyover states is that they're less important. And, and this could mean politically less important or less important from a, a tourism, and destina uh, tourism destination standpoint, or just simply less interesting to visit. And when we read our Bibles, I think we need to be on the lookout for what I call flyover verses. There are verses in the Bible that we sort of just, we sort of just skim over. We, we, kind of, we, we skim over them to get to, to verses that we think are more important or more applicable or the ones that we want to commit to memory or the ones that we want to put on pictures up on our walls. And I think verse 10 is potentially one of those flyer verses. 
It's part of the story here, but it's, it's easy to skim over as we try to read what Jesus has to say in this parable. But sometimes we can skim over these verses and, and miss some important truth that they contain. And I think there's, there's some, something here in verse 10 for us. So let's read this again. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So by little ones, Jesus is again referring to children as a continuation of, of the who's the greatest uh, conversation. So Jesus brought a child up. And so he's continuing to talk about ch- children here, but he's calling them little ones. But I want to point you to the second half of the verse, which reads, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. So in heaven, their angels. This implies that each person has angels, not just one, but angels, plural, assigned to them and assigned to their care. And verse 10 says that they always see the face of God, meaning that the angels have direct and continuous contact with God. And by that direct and continuous contact with God, they're able to carry out God's God's guidance and and protection in our lives. And this is where the idea of guardian angels comes from. It comes from verse 10. And I always thought the idea of a guardian angel is more of a a secular idea, you know, like the the little angel on your shoulder that argues with the little devil on your shoulder, Um, or the idea that a loved one may die and then they go up into heaven and and they become, they watch over you and become your guardian angel. Or, or that we have guardian angels that just kind of hover around us and just protect us from, from any, um, and keep us safe at all times. But the Bible doesn't really support any of those ideas. But throughout the Bible, the, or throughout the Bible, there are instances of God sending angels to individuals in times of need. In the book of 1 Kings, Elijah, he, he's fled from evil Jezebel and he's hiding out in, in the wilderness and an angel comes and brings him food and water so that he has strength to continue traveling. In Matthew 4, after Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, we read that angels come and tend to his needs and minister to him. And in Acts 12, an angel shows up in the middle of the night and busts Peter out of prison. And so verse 10 seems to support the idea that we each have angels assigned to us. And so here's what I think we can say from verse 10. That God values us so much that he assigns individual angels to guide and protect each of us. Or more simply, God will guard what is valuable. In some ways, the idea of a guardian angels is kind of like having a, bo- a bodyguard or, or a secret service. Um, does anyone hear of a bodyguard? I've never seen that here at Fathom. I've never seen uh, you know, someone roll into Fathom with, with an entourage and come down, you know, someone clear in the hallway with an earpiece in and uh, anything like that. Don't take this the wrong way, but no one here has bodyguards because no one here is important enough to need one. <laughs> hey, everyone, everyone here is important. Don't take it the wrong way. But just not on the level that we need our own personal security detail to keep us safe. The people who have security team, teams tend to fall into three groups. One is celebrities, and they're just so famous that some crazy fan may want to get too close to them and, and maybe do, do, some, do some harm. Or criminals, they need protection from other criminals. Or political leaders who are so important to the country's leadership that they need extra layers of protection. And it was just coincidence that I listed criminals and polit- politicians together. But... <laughs> We assign protection to the people that are most important to our society. Just as we protect and we guard the things that are valuable to us. You know, we, we install security systems on our homes and our cars. We put our valuable stuff into a safe. 
We hire bodyguards and security to protect valuable and important people. And God is no different. Just like us, God will guard what is valuable to him. That's my first point this morning, that he, he guards what is valuable. He assigns angels to care for us, to guide us and guard us, because each of us, each of God's children, are immensely valuable to him. And so he guards what he values. And in God's eyes, we're all valuable. I don't know about you, that makes me feel valued by God, knowing that, that I have my own spiritual security detail, my own angelic entourage. God values us, he values you enough that he's assigned angels to you to guard what is valuable to him. Now, as we move on, you may notice there's, there's no verse 11 in, in the text. Verse 11 is missing. And there's probably, your Bibles probably contain a little footnote that explains this missing verse. The verse is missing because the oldest manuscripts of Matthew that we have don't contain verse 11. And so the footnote might stay what the verse reads. It reads, the Son of Man came to save what was lost. In other words, the Son of Man, who is Jesus, came to save what may get lost. He came to find and save the lost. And so this sets up the the next couple verses. So let's move on to verse 12 and read that together. It says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So I have a simple math problem for you this morning. I know you were told that there would be no math here at church, but this this one's really easy. I'm gonna put it up on the slide. 100 minus 1 equals 99. We, we can all handle this one, right? Even, even on a Sunday morning. Um, it's not the linear algebra my, my engineer roommates were, were doing. This is simple math because Jesus is giving a simple parable to his disciples. He's creating a simple way for them to learn about value. And so let's break down the numbers here. We'll start with, we'll start with the number 100. Verse 12 says, a man has 100 sheep. Now, the number 100 really isn't significant. It's just meant to be a, a large number. It signifies that the man has a lot of sheep, a flock of sheep. It's not just one or two. He's got a bunch of sheep. Uh, it could be a shepherd caring for many sheep. So that's the number 100. And then verse 12 says, and one of them has gone astray. So the number one that we're subtracting in our math problem is one sheep wanders off. And so we need to talk about this sheep for a minute. This is, this is a lost sheep in, in the parable of the lost sheep. Now, a lost sheep's pretty easy to understand. A sheep wanders away from the flock. It it wanders off and gets lost. That makes sense. But again, this is a parable, a story about sheep that teaches us about the kingdom. And so what does a lost mean for us? What what does Jesus mean here when he's talking about the lost? Who who are the lost sheep? The Greek verb used here is planeo, which means to go astray or wander away. And most commentators say this verse refers not to unbelievers, as in, as in not, not, it's not to non-Christians or people who don't believe in Jesus. This isn't referring to them, but rather in this parable, the lost refers to believers who get lost in their faith. Those who have a relationship with, with Christ, they're already in the faith, they're already part of the body of believers. Given the context and the focus on little children or little ones, Jesus is most likely speaking here about those in the body of believers who may be newer Christians or younger believers, not necessarily young age-wise, but just younger in their faith. They may be immature in their faith. And it's the newer believers who are more prone to get lost or to go astray. Because a newer believer may not yet have fully established their faith. They're still learning God's word. They're still understanding how to apply it to their lives, learning what it means to follow Christ and be a part of a church. 
And because they're still young in their faith, it's easier for them to get lost in their faith. They may be more easily tempted and pulled away by worldly desires. They may not have discipleship support around them. They aren't in a D group or don't, may not have many Christian friends or Christian accountability to help them. They may not have lived out their faith enough yet to keep them grounded in it, especially when things get hard. It's easier for the newer believer to wander off. And so the loss here is not necessarily the unbelievers in the world around us, but the newer, younger believers in the church. This is who Jesus, the shepherd, will go after when they wander off. And Jesus says, and one of them has gone astray. This is, this is who he's referring to. The lost are, are the one in, in our math problem. Now, the Bible talks a lot about shepherds. It's, it's, it's a pretty f- uh, familiar and frequently used topic in the Bible. But I want to learn a little bit more about, about, about shepherds, you know, get a little bit more context, context on what Jesus is teaching here. But I don't know any shepherds. I've never met a shepherd. Um, so I just, you know, did what we all do. I went online and did a little bit of, of, of research just to get a better sense of, of what shepherding looked like in Jesus' time. So let's start with the lands, landscape where the shepherds worked. Now, about as long as I've been married with, uh, to Anne, going on 17 years, we've loved to visit Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, if you've never been, beautiful part of our, spa- our state. I highly recommend it. Like really any time of year, it's great. To get there, it's about a four-hour drive from Denver. And the longest part of the trip to me is on U.S. Highway 50 between Monarch Pass and Gunnison, Colorado. If you've ever driven this stretch of, of road, it's about the last third of the, of the drive to, to Crested Butte. And as a traveler, you're, you're starting to get anxious to get there. You're ready to be done driving and, and reach your destination. Your kids have asked, when will we get there? About 15 times by now. Um, it's about 40 miles of, of two-lane road, and it primarily passes through ranch land. In other words, there's not, there's not a lot there. There's no towns, a few houses and barns and things like that, but a whole lot of open space. And as I, I, I kind of looked into the, the desert around Jerusalem where, where shepherds would, would pasture their sheep, the image that comes to my mind is along Highway 50 in Colorado. It's rugged, it's treeless, it's rocky, it's not exceptionally green. Um, it's kind of like this picture. But it's just this vast, uh, large, rocky space suitable for just grazing sheep, flocks of sheep. And so you can imagine being a shepherd and trying to look after 100 sheep in this sort of, uh, this sort of landscape. I mean, the, sheep's, the, the sheep kind of look like rocks in this picture. You know? So, so it's, hard to keep, it's hard to keep an eye on them. But that's the image that Jesus is painting here. The shepherd, the shepherd is working in this type of landscape with a large number of sheep. And he knows how many sheep he's responsible for. He knows the exact number, and he accounts for the entire flock at all times. And so he'll know if any one of those goes missing or, or, or wanders off. Because a sheep that wanders off in this type of, of terrain faces great danger. There's, there's predatory animals that could, that could attack, uh, especially a lone sheep wandering by itself. Um, at the time, robbers would steal sheep and, and, and sell, sell it for money. A lone sheep's a lot easier to, to steal than, than from a flock. A sheep could get injured or sick and the shepherd's not there to care for it. It could fall or it could wander into like a ravine and not be able to get out, or it could be unable to find food or water on its own and could starve. And so dangers that a sheep alone in the wilderness could face are many. When a sheep's away from the safety of the flock and away from the protection of the watchful shepherd, the sheep is in grave danger, and the shepherd knows this. The shepherd knows the danger that a lost sheep faces if it isn't quickly found and brought back to the flock. 
And so when a sheep wanders off or goes astray, the shepherd will immediately go after the lost. As soon as the shepherd realizes the sheep is going astray, finding it becomes his highest priority. He'll go out into the wilderness alone, day or night, rain or shine, regardless of time or day or whatever else he had planned. And he'll search, he'll, he'll scour the hillsides looking for it. He'll find high ground and look for movement that might be the sheep. He'll call the sheep. The sheep would recognize his voice. And so he'll call to it. He might re- retrace the, step, uh, the, the steps of the flock and, and look for tracks and track the sheep. And he'll look and he'll search until he finds that sheep, at which point he'll bring the sheep back to the flock. Or if it's injured, he'll lift it up onto his shoulder or his back and he'll carry it back. And then when he gets back, he'll rejoice and he'll give thanks because he found the lost sheep and brought it back under his protection and watchful eye. And only then will he rest. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying that this is what our heavenly father does. He goes after the lost. He knows the great and grave danger that a young Christian faces if they try to go it alone, if they try to walk alone. And so he'll leave the 99 behind and go after the one that is lost. He'll drop everything to go after the one that has gone astray. He's reluctant to lose any sheep. So he'll leave the 99 and go after the, the, the lost and he'll search and he'll pursue. And when he finds it, he rejoices because he loves and values even the one single sheep, the one single person who wanders off and gets lost. God will always go after the lost. What Jesus teaches here about God and, and how God values the lost, it's, it's, it's really important to how we view our Lord. And, and one way to illustrate this is to use another math equ- equation. And so, sorry, when you let the treasurer preach, you, you get math, math problems. So this is the last one in the sermon, though, I promise. Um, here's the next, next math question, math, math equation. 99 is greater than one. Again, this is easy. We can all handle this. Basic math, basic logic tells us that 99 is far greater than one. If you have $100 and you lose $1, you're not that upset by the lost dollar because you still have $99. And even with inflation, you can still buy, buy some stuff with 99 bucks. Um, to put it another way, one out of 100 is only 1%. Now, as I said earlier, I studied finance in school, not accounting. I'm not a CPA. But I do know that in accounting, there are, are terms like normal loss or depreciation, reduction, shrinkage, write-off. These are all terms for how to account for loss in business. There are losses that occur during the normal course of business, during normal, regular business operations. Some types of losses occur, and it's just a normal part of the, of the business or the production process. It's, it's a cost of doing business. You try to minimize the losses, but you may never fully eliminate them. And so what an accountant does is they account for that loss. They, they, put, they record the loss into the company's books. But then after uh, recording the loss, they focus on what wasn't lost. Because what wasn't lost is what's most important to the company. That's where the revenue and the profit come from. That's where the value is made for the company and for the shareholders. And so you can imagine a God simply saying, well, 1% loss is simply the cost of doing spiritual business. It's just a normal cost of discipleship. Some young sheep are bound to wander off, and I can live with a 1% loss rate. And he could go on his way, shepherding the remaining 99 who are left. But thankfully, thankfully for the lost, and thankfully for us, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't think the way most businesses do. He doesn't consider a lost sheep to be a, a depreciated asset or, or a normal loss from operations. 
Instead, when he sees a sheep go astray, he suspends operations. He stops everything and he looks for the sheep that wandered off. He isn't only worried about the 99, he's also worried about the one. He accounts for the one just as he accounts for the 99 because he doesn't want even one to get lost. God will always go after the lost, even if it is only one. All right, last two verses. Let's read verses 13 and 14 together. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So earlier we broke down the passage as an equation, 100 minus one equals 99. And we talked about the 100 and we talked about the one that gets subtracted or lost, but we didn't talk much about the 99 that is left. And that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to talk about the 99. As I prepare for a sermon, I do the bulk of my, my prep work and my research in, in commentaries and study Bibles. And these, these kind of help me understand the context of the passage and the, the cultural significance of some of the teachings, you know, what, what, what they meant at that time, um, how the passage lines up or parallels other, other passages in the, Bibles, in the Bible. Um, and the commentary work is, is really the most useful and important part of my study and my, and my prep work. But I also do a, a little bit of just kind of general internet research on the passage. And this can kind of be dangerous. So you, have to be, you have to be a little bit careful. But this often is helpful to un, for me to understand how the passage is, is commonly viewed, how, how maybe other pastors teach or write about the, the topic, or what common questions or controversies or critiques uh, stem from the passage. Even how our broader culture, both inside and outside the church, may view this topic. It's really helpful information to consider when writing a, a sermon. And so when I went through the process for this sermon, there was one topic that, that, uh, that came up that I think is important. In several places, people questioned the idea of, of leaving the 99 behind. They questioned the idea of God prioritizing the one lost sheep over the 99 that stayed in the flock. And Jesus spends a lot of time in Matthew 18 talking about the little ones and the lost, but he doesn't really talk much about the 99. One blog asked, why would God leave the 99 to find just one? And another said, no good shepherd would leave 99 for one sheep. Why did Jesus give such a parable? The thinking is, if the shepherd leaves a flock to go looking for the one lost sheep, then these blogs were asking, then who is protecting the flock? Who's protecting the rest of the sheep? What about the 99? What happens to them? Who's protecting them? Who's watching out for them? When the shepherd goes to look for the one, who protects and leads the 99? And the answer is the 99. The 99 keep the 99 safe. The 99 watch out for each other while the shepherd is gone. The shepherd leads the 99 for a time because they're already safe. They're not, they're not lost. The 99 have already been found. The shepherd knows where they are. And the shepherd knows that the 99 are safe, even though he isn't currently with them. One commentator illustrated it this way. Suppose, suppose there's a father who has six kids. And one night the family's asleep in their home and the smoke alarm goes off. And so the father, the father wakes to the, smoke, the noise of the smoke detectors and he smells, he smells smoke. And so he gets out of bed and he can hear the crackling of flames in the house. He can see flames in, in the house. And so he knows that the house is severely on fire. And so he runs down the hallway into his kids' bedrooms and he begins waking his kids. 
And he wakes them from their sleep and he explains what's going on. He gets them out of their beds and rushes them, rushes them down the stairs and out the front door and safely into the neighbor's front lawn across the street. And when he gets there, he takes a count. Johnny, Jimmy, Ashley, Emma, Ben, where's Sally? Sally is missing. Five children are safe, but one isn't. One is still somewhere inside that house. And so what, what does a father do? You can bet he goes back inside that house to find Sally. But in doing so, he leaves his other kids on that front lawn. He leaves them behind so he can go back inside to look for the lost child. Because he knows that the five other kids are already safe. He knows where they are. He knows that while he's going looking for Sally, the older ones can, can look after and comfort the younger ones. He knows that while he's gone, the five kids can keep each other together and keep each other safe until he returns with their lost sister. And so listen, church, God, God is no different. God is a good shepherd and a good father. And like a good shepherd, he gives value to all of his sheep. Like a good, value, like a good father, he gives value to his children. He values the 99 just as much as he values the one that is lost. But that doesn't mean he won't leave the 99 to go find the one that is lost. Verse 14 points out to us, it's not his will that even one of these should perish. All are loved and valued by our good and heavenly father. And so I think the second thing that to point out here while we're talking about the 99 is that the 99 are together where and when the shepherd leaves them. There's safety in the flock. There's security in the flock. And just like, like in my illustration about the house fire, when the dad goes away to find the lost child, while he's going, the older brothers and the older sisters will watch over the younger ones until the father comes back. And I think for us, the flock represents the church. Once Jesus has found us, it's important for us to be in community with others with some who may be older and some who may be younger than us, with some who are more, uh, more experienced spiritually than us, with some who are less experienced, with some who are willing to guide us or correct us or encourage us. The local church is like our flock. The flock is necessary for our spiritual safety and our protection as we walk with the Lord. Our local flock helps keep us from wandering off on our own. Now, maybe, maybe some of you are here this morning and, and you would say that you haven't yet put your faith in Christ. And, and maybe you're here this morning, you came with a, a family member or a friend, or maybe you're here for some, some other reason. I, I don't know, but I hope that Jesus is, is calling you this minute, this very morning, and, and that the Spirit is, is stirring up something inside of you. And I hope and pray that you're hearing this morning how much Jesus loves and values each of us, and that he's willing to go to all lengths to bring each of us into his flock. I pray that you leave here this morning knowing how much you're valued and loved in the kingdom of heaven. But my guess is that the majority of us who got up this morning and came to church did so because you already believe in Jesus. And, and going to church is just a part of your, of your discipline as a believer. Community with a flock on a Sunday morning is just part of what you do each week. And for those who are believers, I think there's a challenging part of this parable for us. And it's in the second half of verse 13, where we read, he rejoices over it, the lost sheep. He rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. In other words, when someone wanders from the faith and Jesus brings them home, there is great rejoicing in heaven 
more rejoicing than over the 99 who were faithful all along. Now, if you're part of the 99, it's, it, it might be easy to, to read or hear this and ask, well, what about me? What, what about us? How is this parable fair to us? How is it, how's it fair to the 99? You know, I understand that God already considers me safe and found, and so he'll leave, leave me to go find the lost. I get that, but, but I've been a good sheep for a while now. I've been faithful. I haven't wandered off. I read my Bible every day. I pray regularly. I have a daily quiet time. I'm in a D group. I even give and tithe to the church. Shouldn't I be the one that God celebrates? Shouldn't those of us who are faithful be the ones that the Lord rejoices in? Why does God rejoice more over finding the lost than than rejoicing over the faithful who remain faithful? When I first started studying this parable, I I found myself with with a similar thought. Am, am Am I alone on this? Um, I, yeah, it just seems kind of strange that, that God would, you know, leave the 99 to go after the one, but then he would rejoice when the one is found more than he rejoices over the 99 who stayed faithful. It seemed a little strange. And I found myself kind of relating to, to what these blogs were asking. Um, and as I thought on this, I was then reminded of how much it sounds like someone in another one of Jesus' parables. The parable told by Jesus in Luke 15 is commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But some commentators point out that it's better called the parable of the two brothers. Because just as our parable today isn't about just one lost sheep, the parable of the prodigal isn't only about the prodigal son. In addition to the one lost sheep, there's 99 who are left behind. And in addition to the prodigal son, there's the older brother. Now, in Luke 15, the prodigal son, he's the one who takes his inheritance from the father and he, <clears throat> he squanders it all. He, he goes out and he lives foolishly and lavishly. He blows his entire inheritance and doesn't even have money left to buy food. And so he returns to his father's estate in hopes that his father will simply allow him to be one of the servants of that estate. And meanwhile, the older brother, he remains at home with, with the father, faithfully helping to work and oversee the entire state. The older brother remains faithful to his father. And so there's one day that the brother, he's returning from working in the fields, just as he's done faithfully every day. And he's coming home for the evening and he hears, he hears music and laughter and the, the house is all lit up. And he sees the house is full of people and there's a party going on. And so he knows it's not anyone's birthday or anything like that. And he asks one of the servants, he says, hey, what's, what's going on? And the servant tells him that that his younger brother has returned and that his father was so happy that he's killed the fattened calf and hired a band and brought in the caterers and he's invited all their friends and family and neighbors to join them in celebrating the return of his son. And the older brother resents it. And he gets angry. And he lashes out at his father saying, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do we feel that way when we read today's parable? Or have you ever felt the way the older brother felt? I have at times. I, 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 can, you know, I can look at my life and my relationship with Jesus, and I can ask, you know, how could someone wander away from that? How could... How could it, why would anyone wander away from Jesus? It, it just seems foolish. 
It becomes very easily, easy for me to fall into the older brother's thinking of, of self-righteousness and resentment towards that lost sheep. And all the while, I can forget how the father responds to the older brother. The father responds by saying, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So church, here's, here's the bigger point. Not only is Jesus' love for the one lost sheep good news for that lost sheep, it's good news for all the sheep. Because it means that Jesus doesn't only love us because we obey the rules or read our Bibles or pray every day or act like good, faithful Christians. That isn't why he loves us. That isn't why he'll go out and search for each one of us. It's not because we're good sheep that he values us. He loves us because he simply loves us. That's all. There's no strings attached. There's no qualifications. Jesus doesn't just see a lost sheep wander off and he doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, they weren't really living their life for me anyway. They weren't really truly faithful. That was bound to happen. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, I love them. They're one of mine. I'm not willing to lose even one of them. And so he'll leave the rest of the flock to go find them. He'll go out into the wilderness and search and call for them. He'll go back into the burning house for them. And as one of the 99, we can learn that if he loves the one unconditionally, then he loves us unconditionally also. He would search the wilderness or the burning house for any and every one of us. And that is good news, not just for the one sheep, not just for the 99 sheep, but for all the sheep. All the sheep have value to Jesus. He loves all of his sheep, no matter how long they've strayed, how far away they've wandered, or what they've done while they've wandered. The shepherd loves them. The shepherd loves you. He values each of us immensely, and it's why he guards what is valuable. He loves each of us unconditionally. It's why he'll go after the lost, even if it is just one person out of 100. And he values all of us. It's why he, va- he gives value to all 100, not just the 99 who are faithful, not just the one who wonders, but all of his sheep, all of his children. All are loved and valued by the shepherd. And he loves you and he values you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our good father, that you are our good shepherd. And God, we thank you that that you, you love each of us and that you love us unconditionally. You love us so much that if any one of us, any single one of us wanders off, you immediately drop everything and prioritize bringing us back. And you'll go out in the dead of night, you'll go out in storms, you'll go out in heat, you'll go out in any condition to find us and bring us back because you know that is the best place for us, the safest place for us is among the flock. And God, we we thank you that um, just as you love that one person, you love each of us and you love each of us unconditionally. God, we thank you for, uh, that you loved us so much that you gave us you give us a flock. You give us a local flock, a local church to, to be with us and, and, and help keep us safe. And God, we thank you for providing that. 
We thank you that, that you provide that because that's the safest place for us to grow in the flock of believers under your care and your watchful eye. And so God, I don't know how this, this parable is striking people and, and maybe, maybe there's, there's a, the tendency to, to be like the older brother in, in Luke 15 and, and say, you know, yeah, God, but what about me? I've been faithful and I don't feel, I don't feel loved. But God, let this passage today be a reminder that you do value us immensely. You love us deeply. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you value us so much that you've given us a flock, but also that you've given us your son. And so God, we thank you for him this morning. We thank you for your provision of your son as our savior. We thank you for your provision of the church and of the flock. We thank you so much for your love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.